0: We have been uh, for a while praying for this morning because uh, we knew the Urban Plunge would be taking place, and uh, my friend Joseph Peterson would be coming and speaking. And uh, Joseph, just to date myself a little bit, uh, I was a part of, and um, I was mentored by his father and have known his family for a long time. And uh, I will say this of Joseph, and I'm not going to give him a long introduction, but I want to just say... Uh, that this is a man that's just passionate about Jesus and wanting to live out faith. Uh, he's hungry to share the gospel. And um, God called him from Florida and uh, moved him up to Canada. And uh, they've been there for the last couple of years just investing in the lives of people. And uh, would you welcome Joseph with me as he comes to share?
1: Oh, thanks, man. Love you, man. Love you, man. Yes, thank you, Russ, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, I am an American, but I live in Canada now, so that's interesting. Uh, I was born and raised in Indiana, then moved to Pennsylvania, Scranton, Pennsylvania, home of the office. Yes, that's my hometown, represent. Uh, But then the Lord called me to Florida and then called me to Vancouver, Canada. So it has been quite the journey. The Lord has been faithful. He has been gracious to me and my family. Uh, I have a beautiful wife, Nicole. Uh, I have a son, Haddon. He is one and a half. And then I have a baby daughter on the way this summer. So yeah, give it up for Nicole. Amen. Amen. Uh, It is a great privilege to be with you. Palm Sunday, when Russ was asking me uh, to share... This morning, I was a little bit like, dude, this is Palm Sunday. This is like your thing. I'm an outsider. I'm an exile coming in. Uh, So I I am very thankful to be with you. I also just want to say thank you to this community, to the leadership, to those of you who have welcomed us in for dinners. We were at large Community and hanging out Urban Plunge. Uh, We sleep in that room. Uh, And so it has just been a great honor to be with you and to be able to learn from you This is a really special place and I'm really thankful to uh, be with you. So again, for a disclaimer, if you're a guest, a visitor, first time here, uh, I am not the normal person that is preaching. So if you like hate what I say, if you hate me, feel free to send me an email, russ at uh, newcommunity.com. Just tell me how much you're frustrated and uh, there'll be grace for you, all right? So, that being said, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you're new to the Bible, as we all once were, John is in the New Testament. If you need to look at the table of contents in order to find John, uh, that is totally fine. John chapter 12. Uh, as Russ mentioned, you're in the middle of a series in the Gospel of John, but with the unique perspective of starting from the end and working your way backwards. So that, that's a really incredible thing. Uh, what an amazing series uh, for me to just be able to hop in uh, and spend some time with you in Scripture. So uh, very excited, Palm Sunday. Today, I want us to consider one simple idea, uh, and that idea is an unlikely king. An unlikely king. So John chapter 12, uh, we're going to start reading in verse 12. I'll read till verse 19 and then we'll pray and we will get going. So John 12, uh, look down with me at verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not know these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and he And had been done to him. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Uh, This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Uh, Jesus, again, we, we thank you, we praise you for your goodness and your grace uh, to us. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that as we spend time uh, around the scriptures, that you would speak to us, that you would show us Jesus, uh, that we would see him as glorious and mighty, uh, and that we would uh, respond humbly uh, to the good news of the gospel. And so, uh, Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray, Amen. Well, if you're like me, uh, we all love a good underdog story, right? Whether that's a March Madness uh, tournament with Loyola Chicago now in the final four, an 11 seed, crazy. Uh, maybe it's another sport. Uh, maybe it's an inspiring war story about somebody that was overcoming great odds, had no chance of winning, and then ended up winning or having the victory. We all love underdog story. Uh, is by a person by the name of Neville Longbottom. Anybody? (laughs) Harry Potter? I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Uh, I actually named my son's initials H.J.P. because I love Harry Potter so much. Uh, I just forced that identity onto him. Um, (laughs) But one of my favorite characters in the whole story is Neville Longbottom. And here's the reason why. Neville uh, was a kid. He was born as an Orphan, He lived with his grandmother. His grandmother didn't like him, didn't want anything to do with him. Sent him off to Hogwarts and never rode him, never gave him any money. Uh, And there were the cool crowd, you know, of Harry and Hermione and all these cool kids at school. But Neville was shy and he was clumsy and nobody really wanted to hang out with him. And he didn't really get good grades. Uh, He wasn't very popular. and, And so the people that knew Neville never expected him to be or accomplish or do anything. He was just kind of there, taking up space, not really much expected of him. But, as the story progresses, spoiler, it's been like 15 years, so if you don't know, too bad. It's your own fault. Uh, But, the battle of Hogwarts, the final scene, we have this epic battle, this clash of good and evil. We have Harry, who's who's like the hero, but Harry needs to defeat Voldemort, but he can't do that unless a horcrux is destroyed. But Harry can't do that because he's in another place. He's battling Voldemort. It's like the good and evil, but Neville, this unlikely hero, nobody expected him to do anything. He finds the sword of Gryffindor. He slays the last horcrux, which enables Harry To then kill Voldemort, everybody's happy, Voldemort's dead, Harry's the hero, everything's back to normal, right? This epic battle, good and evil, but if it wasn't for Neville, Harry would have never had the opportunity to do what he needed to do. So in a lot of ways, Neville Longbottom was the unlikely hero of the story of Harry Potter. Now I wonder this morning... How many of us would see Jesus as an unlikely hero? How many of us, if I were to say that, your first reaction would would probably be discomfort, or that offends me a little bit. Jesus being an unlikely hero, what does that mean? This Jesus, this great Messiah, is actually, as we're going to see today, a very unlikely king, an unlikely hero. And I think that's good news for all of us this morning as we gather together. Now, in order to understand what I mean by this, we have to do a little bit of back work uh, to understand just what is going on with Jesus. As we mentioned, it's Palm Sunday. He's coming into Jerusalem. But in order for us to really pick up on what's happening, we need to know a little bit of context. So if you've been around church for a while, if you know your Bibles a little bit, Uh, This will sound familiar to you. If you've never heard any of this, uh, I'm going to condense thousands of years in history in a few sentences. But God comes to Abraham and chooses Abraham and says, This family, this specific family, I am going to bless. And this family is then going to be a blessing to the whole world. So through Abraham, through this one family... God is going to bring about restoration and renewal and healing to the entire cosmos. And so Israel is the name of this family. And God comes to Israel, he gives this promise, but it has yet to be fulfilled. So throughout the Old Testament, which is, is really the first half of your Bibles, uh, Israel is waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for this person to come through their family tree to bring renewal and healing to the world, but they don't experience that, right? If you know the story of Israel, if you know your Bibles, they have evil kings, they live under oppression, uh, they're led off into exile, there's mass uh, murder, and there's injustice, and there's evil both in this family and outside the family, and really, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, everything looks terrible, and all hope is lost, and then you get to the New Testament, uh, and things really aren't a lot better. As Jesus comes onto the scene as, the ba- as a baby, uh, the Israelites, they're under the oppression of the Roman government. And they're still waiting for this King, this Messiah, this Savior to come. And not only bring about restoration, but healing and renewal to everything. They were expecting someone... To save them, to conquer their enemy, to kill everyone and elevate them to a status of power and money and influence, right? So if somebody promised that someday someone was going to come to your family and make all things right, you would want that, right? You would be desperate for that. But the king that they wanted was not the king that ended up coming on the scene, The Jesus that they encountered in the story is not the Jesus that they expected. Right? They were looking for a Messiah to come. He was a political he else. All of these people who are not Jews are terrible people. So I'm going to come as a conquering hero. I'm going to bring my sword. I'm going to take this family tree. I'm going to elevate everyone. We're going to kill everyone. And then we are going to elevate our status to Influence and respect, and we're going to tax, and we're going to be the kings because we're going to be on top. That's what Israel had in their mind, and that's what they wanted. They wanted power. They wanted success. They wanted influence. They wanted someone to come and be their conquering king, right? And if you know the story, Jesus comes on the scene, and that's not at all what this king looks like. That's not the kingdom that he brings with him. In fact, Jesus calls them to a life of generosity, a life of loving their enemies, of serving the poor, of praying for their persecutors and most unlikely unlikely, this King, this Jesus calls them to lay their lives down for the very people that would be their enemies. An upside-down kingdom, an unlikely vision from an unlikely king. So this morning, I want us to consider two questions together. Simple outline, two questions I want us to consider. The first question is this, what kind of king do we want? What kind of king do we want In verse 13 of our passage we read that the people took palm branches as you got coming in today and were shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel which to us modern west 2018 doesn't really sound that terrible like okay blessed is comes in the name of the Lord that sounds fine the king of Israel that also whatever we don't have kings but That sounds nice. But translating, what they're saying is finally someone is coming to take over Rome and give us power and influence. We're tired of being the lowest of the low. We want to kill our enemies. We want to trample on those who have oppressed us. We want to start saying Merry Christmas again and get the victory. We can finally pay back everyone who has mistreated us like it's our time. I'm tired of being rejected, I'm tired of being mistreated, I'm tired of being trampled on. Give me my king that I can follow. In fact, they even go on to quote Psalm 118, which historically in the Jewish faith is known as the conquering psalm. And there's no doubt that when the people were singing this song as Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem... They were looking to Jesus as their political deliverer from this Roman oppression. He's our conquering king. He's our hero. Finally, our faith is in this guy, what we want, our vision for our life, our flourishing. It's about us. There is no doubt that they were looking to him as the conqueror of their enemy, and their enemy was other people. For them, it seemed only a matter of time until the trumpets rang out and the call to arms sounded and all the people of God would grab their swords and their shields and finally march into their victory over their Roman oppressors, take over, and finally come to a place of prominence and power in their culture. Now this idea... I would argue, doesn't seem that foreign to us. We may not have swords and shields, and we may not be riding on horses and donkeys, but I would argue this concept has a ton of parallels to us living in the West in 2018. Right? Like, how many people want victory in their life? How many people want to win? We see this in politics, in governments. We see this in sports, in our kids and their educators, in high school sports. We see this in education. We see this in the workplace. We see it everywhere. We want a king that will give us the victory. We want to invest in what will give us a successful return. We want to give ourselves to those things that will give us influence and power and success and money and wealth and the upper hand in life. I know it's Spokane, but, but we see this all the time in Vancouver. Vancouver, if you've ever been there, is one of the most beautiful cities you could ever imagine. There is the city, you have the beach, you have the mountains, you have an incredible public transportation system. It was recently voted literally the greenest city in the world. So like, we have our recycling, and then we have our mixed paper, then we have our paper, then we have our compost, then we have our trash, then we have our cardboard, and it takes you hours to just figure out, okay, which piece of trash. And I can't use a clear bag because if I put a banana peel in a clear bag and the garbage guys come, they're going to give me a ticket for putting a piece of banana in the garbage because that goes in the compost. but I still love Vancouver. (laughs) But in Vancouver, you go to Vancouver to be the best. You go to Vancouver because it's a center for business. It is, is one of the metroplexes of all of Canada and really North America in a lot of ways. There's entertainment, there's culture, it's so diverse. There's tons of money. There's wealth, there's recreation, you have hiking, education, influence. Vancouver is a place that you go to win. You go to be successful. If you are poor, if you are marginalized, if you're maybe not really that smart, not really successful, you don't go to Vancouver. Because it's too expensive, it's not worth it, I'm going to go to the Burbs. Right? And in fact... In our cultural moment, we're actually moving to a place where we don't want to follow anybody else. We want to follow ourselves. I want to be the king. I want to be the queen. I want to be the savior of my own story. And I'm sure the same thing happens here in Spokane. Like, who gets ahead by getting beat? Who gets the promotion by laying down what's best for them for a coworker? Who gains more by giving their wealth away? What kind of king do we want? A king that calls us to fight or to lay down our lives for the good of those around us. A king that calls us to be successful or put the needs of others before our own. Maybe a king whose kingdom extends far beyond our own time, our own nation, our own economy, even our own lives. And I would argue... That oftentimes this king that we want to follow is a king that's made in our own image. A king that we can look to and say that person looks like me. They have the same values as me. They will fight for my rights. It's about me and my success and my platform and my influence and my vision for seeing my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So they wanted a king to conquer the world for them. And I think if we're honest, oftentimes, that's the very same king that we want. But thankfully, the second and the final question I want us to consider this morning, first was what kind of king do we want? Secondly, I want us to consider what kind of king was Jesus? See, Jesus was not the king that Israel expected. And in reality, he wasn't even the king that Israel wanted Right? They wanted Saul, they wanted big and powerful and strong and able to slay the enemies. But Jesus, he comes on the scene, he starts hanging out with drug lords and people that are homeless and anti-government terrorists and prostitutes and lepers and crooked politicians and not only that, but this king calls his followers to love their enemies and be generous with what has been generously given to them what what kind of king would do that and he said that his kingdom in his kingdom the way up was down and the way to victory is a road that is paved with suffering and with death we read today that jesus came into jerusalem riding on a donkey so in first century jewish Middle Eastern culture, if you came on a donkey, it meant that you were coming into, into the city peacefully. Right? If you came on a horse, it meant it was game time. It was business. I'm bringing my army. I'm coming to crush you all. It's about me, and I'm going to slay everyone who doesn't believe in my vision for the kingdom. But Jesus comes peacefully. This action of Jesus was a sign that he was not this warrior figure, power-hungry, success-crazed king that the people of Israel dreamed of, but rather was a prince of peace. And no one actually saw who he was because their minds were filled with what they wanted him to be, their vision for what they sh- thought Jesus should be doing for them. They looked for a king of their own dreams and of their own wishful thinking and they did not want this Messiah that Jesus was. But I would argue Jesus was an even greater king that they or we could ever imagine. See Jesus was a king who came and laid down his life for his enemies. His suffering and ultimately His death were the greatest examples of the sort of kingdom that Jesus was bringing to his people. A kingdom that values humility and generosity. A kingdom in which the citizens of this kingdom love their enemies. A kings who have no voice. An upside down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And Jesus, this unlikely king, says... That you, as a citizen of this kingdom, are first and foremost identified as a son or a daughter of the king. And your citizenship does not rest on what you can accomplish or what you bring to the table or your gifts or your abilities or your past or your present, the abuse that you've gone through, the mistakes that you've made. Even the great things that you have done. Jesus says in his kingdom, you are first and foremost a son and a daughter. And that rests on his authority as king. And nobody can touch you. And your identity is set. It is cemented in who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That in Jesus you are fully loved and accepted and cherished and valued simply because... You are made in the image of this king. The work is finished. You can rest in his goodness and grace for you. You have nothing left to prove and you have nothing left to accomplish. And this, I would argue, is the unlikely king that we follow. This is the king who suffered and died for us. This is the king who gave his life that we might know forgiveness... And peace and restoration and reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. The unlikely king that we worship and humbly lay our lives before. So as we close this morning, I want to read one passage of scripture from the Old Testament about our king. In the context of what we've talked about. In Isaiah, we read this. Our king had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Our king was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely our king has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Our king was pierced for our transgressions and our king was crushed for our sins. By the wounds of our king, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord has laid on our king the iniquity of us all. And our king was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Our king poured out his soul to death that we might be saved. And this, brothers and sisters, friends, is the unlikely king that we follow. Let's pray together. Jesus, um, we, we don't deserve to be citizens of your kingdom. We don't deserve to be sons and daughters. and We have ways that we've fallen short. We have... Uh, things that we've done that we regret and we, we look on you and your grace and your majesty and your vision for your kingdom. And so often we fall short and, and we choose our own life and our own success and our own flourishing over other people. And so um, as we did, we, we take the bread and the cup and we look to you and know that we are forgiven, that we are righteous. You are our king and that nothing we could do could change that. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, uh, that you would cement uh, these truths in our hearts as we seek to follow Jesus in this city and and seek to bring justice and renewal and healing and partner with you to see Jesus' kingdom come and his will be done here in Spokane as it is in heaven. And so Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray, amen.
0: Will you uh, thank Joseph with me? Uh, As Joseph was sharing a couple, I know you're thinking about ways in which God is speaking to you, but I wanted to highlight a few things that he was saying uh, to me. Um, One of the things that Joseph uh, communicated that I think needs to resonate with this community well is that uh, you are chosen, you're loved, that God sings songs over you, that he delights in you we see that from old testament all the way to new testament and into the present we see a god who lavishes love on his children that he cares so deeply and so passionately for you that that he I, I just imagine him making up songs. Has anybody done that before where you're just like singing and you have no idea what you're singing, but you're just making up words as you go? Maybe I'm the only nerdy one that does that, but uh, occasionally I do that. You wouldn't want to hear it because it's awful, but um, when that's happening, I, I, just, I, I think and I imagine that he's doing that over us. The idea in our minds that he does that when he's happy with us. And that all of a sudden there will be a moment when I'm in the midst of sin that he then just kind of stops singing. And it's like, yeah, well, shoot. But no. He's, even in that moment, even in the moment that you regret, even in the moment that you say, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that or whatever it is, or I wish I wasn't battling and dealing with this demon or this thing that I'm struggling with. And even in that moment, he's still delighting over you. He's still looking on you and going, oh man, you're my kid and I love you. You're amazing. I'm so proud of you. That's the kind of God that we serve. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past, what you struggle with in the present, or what you will ever do in the future. He is a God that unconditionally loves you. I think we need to sit with that and continue to be reminded of that, which leads to this second thing that I kept hearing. As Joseph was describing this unlikely king, the one that kind of went against the norms, the one that instead of being all about power and authority and rule and reign, he came in humility and gentleness in this posture that overwhelmed but in a unique way. I think the thing that kept uh, coming to my mind is this passage, I believe it's in First Peter, probably around chapter 2, and it says this, that you are a royal nation, or a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, and there's one little phrase that I left out. He says, you are a peculiar people, right? Peculiar, odd, different, strange. Now, when I grew up, I always heard that, and I was like, oh, okay, and I thought it meant because primarily this is what I taught it meant. I was taught that it meant, Um, so we're nerdy. We don't wear what anyone else wears because then we'd look like the culture. We don't want to do that. We don't listen to any music that anyone else even likes, honestly. And we have all these things that like set us apart from the rest of the world and people look on and go, yeah, they must be Christian, right? And that's not at all what it means to be a peculiar people. What it means is that when you walk through life, people notice that you're different because they go, wow, that person walks with humility or that person walks with such generosity. Or when a group of people walk past one of our friends that lives on the streets and they walk right past them and don't even acknowledge their existence or their dignity as a human and you walk by and you give dignity and honor, people go, that's odd, that's different. When you greet people with gentleness when you walk around and you demonstrate with words of affirmation to people that they matter and they truly are loved, it is those things that make us peculiar. It is those things that make us different. And it's those things that I think most fully reflect this idea that we follow an unlikely king. It looks a little bit different than the way the world imagined he should. And it is that that I think he continues to look on and smile. May we be those people.